believe that God has gathered us here, which means God has gathered you here for a reason. It's because he wants you to know how much he loves you and he wants you to know him. Uh, and he's happy that you're here and that makes us happy that you're here. With all of your beautiful, wonderful, shining faces, you look like nice people. Everyone's having a good hair day today, right? I'm laying it on thick right now. I'm trying to butter you up because with your permission, I want to start with something that's kind of mean. Is that okay? A little offensive, maybe? We'll make you uncomfortable. <laughs> Have you ever actually wrestled with this fact of life? Like, in the middle of the fight with your wife, or in the thing at work that's not working out, or that thing in your relationship, or in your family dynamic that's just not doing, you know? You ever looked at yourself in the mirror and said, I know you. You're the problem. You ever really wrestled that reality to the ground? That sometimes it's just you are the problem. First person, I am the problem, right? Not that there aren't other problems. Not that other people aren't problems because he's a problem and she's a problem and they're a problem and this is, this is a problem. But the common denominator in all of the problems surrounding your life you, you know? There's kind of a rule of thumb in uh, things like counseling and, 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 and therapy and 12-step programs, and just helping people. And the rule of thumb is you can never really change anyone else's behavior. The only person's behavior that you can change is your own. And if you're the problem, then you're the only one whose behavior you can actually change. Now, why am I saying all this? Uh, this will all make sense in a little bit. We're in the middle of a series right now. It's called Need to Know. And we're talking about the things that we need to know to have a faith, to have a life that can not just survive, but actually thrive in the midst of a challenging world, a world full of problems. Now, it's the thing that you need to know to have that kind of faith that you are the problem? No, that's not this morning's Need to Know. However, it's a helpful thing to know, right? That in life, there are things that we face, problems that we face, where we are just the problem. The thing that we need to know this morning is that we need to know how to think and how to love. How to think and how to love. Um, and here's the deal. I can tell you what to think. I can tell you how to think. I can tell you how to love. But I can't make you do it. Right? I can't change that in you. The only person who can change that in you is you. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning makes a fundamental assumption about who we are that there's just something wrong. There's something missing, something kind of fundamental about our approach, about our outlook to the world that needs to change, which means that we need to change something very fundamental about how we think. And when I say how we think, I mean how we think and then how we do things because we think that way, which means how we think, how we do things, which means how we love. Something very fundamental needs to change. And if this thing changed, it could be, could be the key to unlocking um, the problems in your life. It could be the key to unlocking your faith if your faith isn't working quite right. And here's the thing. It could be the key also to unlocking, um, to unleashing what God is looking to do through this community. 
okay? Um, so it, it could be the key to all of that, to unleashing that. Now, uh, for some of you who are here, uh, who are visiting, you might not have ever, have ever really been part of a church where this kind of thing works together, right? It kind of works the right way. And so this morning, you'll get sort of a window into a church that's working right, right? I mean, first, a church that's not working right, but then into a church that is working right. Because I know that for some of you, the reason that you never wanted to be involved with the church, you would write off God, write off faith, is because you've seen it before. You've seen what happens when churches don't... Um, practice what they preach, and you don't want to be a part of that. So this will be a bit of a window for you into a church that is actually working right. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage from uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul was a guy who, prior to following Jesus, made it very difficult to follow Jesus. He, he would round up, he would imprison Christians, and then the risen Jesus meets him, knocks him on his butt, he becomes a believer, and then Paul makes it his mission in life to make it so that people who don't know Jesus can come to know Jesus. Um, last week, if you missed that message, we talked about all Paul cared about was uh, more and more people coming to know Jesus. All Paul cared about, the way it was put in Philippians 1, is the spread of the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, about how he died for you, how he was raised for you, and in some crazy way, he is now king of the world. That's like the gospel. And um, all Paul cared about was the spread of of that gospel. Uh, the passage that we're going to um, open with this morning is from actually chapter 1. We kind of moved past chapter 1 last week, but we're going to go back to it right now. Here's what Paul writes to this little community in this uh, Roman colony called Philippi. He wrote to them, only live your life in a manner worthy of that gospel of Christ. And what he means by that is your life, what you do together, what you do as individuals, make sure that that reflects the truth, that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he's raised, and that he's actually in charge of the world. Um, live, your life manner of, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians while he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be released and be able to go and see them. He doesn't know if he's going to um, die of disease in that prison or die of a prison riot or get executed the next day. So whether I come or I go, whether I see you or not, here is what matters, that you're standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith, with one mind for the faith of the gospel. This is what actually counts. Paul is writing to this Philippian community because he, he needs them to make it. He needs them to survive because all he cares about is the spread of the gospel in that region and for the gospel, for the good news about Jesus to go into the towns, the villages, the streets, the businesses around Philippi. He needs this group of Jesus followers right there um, to survive and to go and to be about that same gospel. And so what Paul cares about is the health of this little tiny Christian community because the local church, and we believe this today too, the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of uh, 
that region in Philippi, the local church is the hope of Monmouth County. That's why we are here this morning. Now, here's the thing that you might not know about Christianity today versus then. Today, Christianity is everywhere. It's the world's biggest religion. Um, Almost all of us, I'm assuming, grew up in the West, perhaps, where Christianity is just by default, it's kind of everyone's religion. Whether people actually follow it or not is a different story, but it's kind of everywhere. Um, in some places, it's like the state-sanctioned religion, right? Uh, we have cities and towns named after heroes of faith. I mean, I'm named after a hero of the Christian faith, the Gospel of Matthew, right? My name is Matt. Um, the guy who was up here before, Paul, he was named after a hero of faith, the guy whose letter we're writing about. It's kind of goes, you know, for granted that Christianity is the thing. You can't drive down the road too far without running into a church. In those days, though, you know, 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote this letter, that wasn't the case at all. Christianity was a fledgling little barely hanging on faith that, you know, no one was sure it was actually going to survive. I mean, it was a blip on the radar. It was a growing blip, but it was a blip. Um, It started in Judea around Jerusalem, where Jesus was from. But at that time, um, you know, Judaism was kind of all concentrated there in Judea. And Judaism, in 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 the scope of the world, was a small little faith, too. And Christianity was kind of a subset, a sect that broke out from Judaism. So it's tiny. And Philippi is in, uh, like, the Greco-Roman world. It's part of the Roman Empire. It was kind of like where, like, northern Greece would be today. And, um, you know, that area was steeped in Greco-Roman culture, right? There were gods and goddesses. There were temples to this god, temples to that god. There were parades and all that. They worshipped idols. They had sacrifice to the gods and goddesses in these temples. Um, There were parades, all sorts of things. And so in this kind of modern city of Philippi, uh, there was this fledgling little Christian community, which maybe had as many people who are sitting in this room right now, I doubt it, right? Versus the big, huge, just accepted, like, religious culture of gods and goddesses. So there was all kinds of external pressures on this little tiny Christian community. Um, Christians didn't participate in idol worship, which means that they didn't buy the idols, which means that no one from Philippi liked Christians because they didn't participate in the economy. And they didn't buy sacrifices, so they didn't participate in the economy. And when there were festivals and parades, they were like, where is the Christians? How come they're not participating? All kinds of pressures on them. Um, And what makes it kind of worse is that, you know, uh, the gods and goddesses, this is like, you know, God's raining down lightning, right? God's of thunder. There's gods of the sea and gods who have the ability to uh, bring a harvest and whatnot. The ruler of the Jesus movement, the ruler of the Jesus community, was uh, a poor manual laborer from a town in a region that no one ever heard of, that no one ever cared about, who was unceremoniously killed as a common criminal who they mistakenly, foolishly think is actually still alive. Contrast that with gods and goddesses who can rain lightning down and control the seas and could um, give you crops and whatnot. There's no comparison. And, you know, even worse, the chief virtues of this little fledgling sect, the chief virtues are things like self-giving love. That has no currency 
in Greco-Roman culture, just like it has no currency in our culture today. Um, one of the chief virtues was humility. In Greco-Roman thought, humility was a word that didn't really fit. It didn't really have a place. It was not a virtue in Philippi, in that society. In that society, um, virtues were things like winning wars, conquering people, thunder and lightning, right? Controlling the sea. Those are virtues. Humility was a word that was associated with slaves. And so when people in Philippi heard that Christianity lifted up humility as a thing, they thought this is a slave religion. This isn't a religion that's worthy of people like us in Philippi. Um, the point is, in that culture, in that context, there was all kinds of uh, external pressure placed on this little tiny fledgling Christian community. But Paul knew that for the gospel to go out to the people in Philippi and in the surrounding areas, he knew that this community needed to make it. And they might be his only shot for that to actually happen. And here's the thing, maybe the Philippians, maybe that little tiny church could limp along in the face of external pressure, right? Opposition from opponents, maybe they could survive that. Cultural, religious pressures from the outside, maybe they could survive that. Economic pressures, um, legal pressures, this was not a sanctioned religion. Maybe they could survive all that external pressure. But here's what Paul knew and what we need to hear this morning the one thing that little tiny Christian community could not survive was internal strife, internal struggle, internal divisions. In the face of that challenging world, it could not make it. Problems from the outside might be ugly, but we can make that. Problems from within, game over. And so Paul wrote them, to make sure that they were clear on this, to encourage them forward, to get them on the same page, to work side by side, to be of one mind, one spirit, striving side by side for the sake of this same thing, for the faith of the gospel. But Paul knew at the core of that, at the center of that, was one thing that had the potential to absolutely just um, ruin everything. And that thing was self-centeredness. Opponents, persecution, outside threats, they could weather those. The one thing that would ruin the church, their faith, their life together, was self-centeredness. That would break their unity. And here's the thing with self-centeredness, right? The only person who can change it is you. It's self-centeredness. Paul's writing them to say, if you are part of this problem, it's on you to change it. Self-centeredness. Look at the way that he talks about it in Philippians 2. He writes to them, he says, as soon as it comes up, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion, any sympathy, he says, make my joy complete. And when he says, if there's any, if there's any, he's not saying, like, I don't know if there's any. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, since there is, encouragement being in Christ, since there is consolation in love, right? And is there any of this? If you were here last week, uh, you would have heard me talk about why Paul's faith not only survived, but could thrive in the face of uh, a prison where he didn't know if he was going to live or die the next day, why he could write with joy. And it was because he believed that his life was in God's hands, whether he lived or he died. 
He believed that he knew the ending of his story, whether it went his way or not. And so is there any encouragement from actually believing that, from actually being in Christ? Of course there is. Whether you live or you die, whether you make a mistake or not, whether it goes left or right, your life is in God's hands. You have nothing to worry about. Is there any consolation from God's love, from our love together? I really hope that there is for you. And you can learn to um, come to experience that from God himself and from one another here. We get to share in God's spirit. In some weird way, God pours his spirit out into us and makes it so that we can live a different life because of that. Um, Compassion and sympathy. We ought to share in that here because we of all people know that we are not perfect, that we are going to mess up all the time, that we are never going to get it totally right. We are all on the same page before God, and that ought to make us compassionate for one another. That ought to give us sympathy for one another. But also, Paul knows what it's like to really mess up, to really do the wrong thing. He, he like rounded up and had Christians killed before he fell. He knows what it's like to sin, to make a mistake. He knows what it's like to be stuck, literally stuck in prison, in a place where you don't want to be. If there's any compassion, any sympathy, Paul knows it. But here's the thing, Jesus knows it. Because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer like you suffers, like you suffer. He shares in that. He has all of the sympathy in the world for us because he was human just like us. And he died in the way that he did just like us. What Paul is saying is if, if any of that's true, If any of that's true, remember, remember who you are in Christ. Remember your your encouragement, the consolation, the compassion, the sympathy. Remember that you share in God's life. Remember that and do this one thing. Make my joy complete. He says, be of the same mind, having the same love in full accord of one mind. This is basically a restatement of what I had up before. And when you look at the different translations for what that says, it's all over the place as far as same mind, same love, like-minded, one soul, same spirit, united in purpose, um, keeping the same thing in mind. What Paul is driving at here is that unity is the thing that's needed in order for a fledgling community like the Philippian one to make an impact for Jesus in that area. If they were split, if they were splintered, if they were going in different directions, it, was, it, it would never have lasted. You know, um, we've all seen the nature videos, right? The wildebeests, they're all kind of huddled in their pack, right? There's a bunch of lions who are kind of going around. We as watchers, as viewers, are all hoping one of the wildebeests kind of like falls off and the lions can attack it, right? But I don't know if that's what they're hoping, but that's what we're hoping, because all we want to do when we see those videos is see an animal get eaten, right? Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I, 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 you guys watch it to see the wildebeest survive? All I want to see is the shark eat the dolphin or whatever the heck it was, right? No? I am the problem. <laughs> That's the most wonderful thing anyone's ever said to me. Um, That's so funny. (laughs) Paul knew. Paul knew that there were strength in numbers, right? There were strength in numbers. And um, if they were to be split off from the middle, they would just have no, they would have no way of making it. There was just, there was just no chance. And so for the, for the sake of the gospel, 
uh, they needed to stick together, to be on the same page. And Paul, Paul then addresses how to do this. Paul addresses how you actually get there, how you do this one mind, one spirit, one purpose thing. And here it is. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. When you boil all of that down, selfish ambition, conceit, thinking you're better than others, looking to your own interest, what it all boils down to is this one thing, it's, it's self-centeredness. Paul knew at the core of this community, the thing that could fracture it and put it to death was self-centeredness. It's you. If you're a part of that, you're the problem. Paul is writing to say, make sure you are not part of that problem. And so if you want to dissect self-centeredness a little bit, some of the things he talks about, selfish ambition. This is um, the idea that you kind of elevate yourself, and in doing that, you put others down. And this necessarily fractures the community, right? It splits people against one another. Um, conceit is the idea that you think more highly of yourself than you really should think of yourself, and, uh, but you're insecure about it. And so you need to make sure you're reminded constantly of kind of how great you are. That's what, that's what conceit means here. Thinking yourself better than others, you know what that is. Looking to your own interests, right? Self-centeredness is putting yourself at the center of the world, at the center of the world. And this is something we all do. An interesting question to think about is why do we do this? Why do we do, why are we kind of inherently self-centered? And I'm going to go to my girl, Brene Brown, right? She's got a Netflix special, pay attention to her. Um, she wrote this book and the second or third chapter or whatever, it's, um, it's about this idea called scarcity, the myth of scarcity. It's the idea that we just, we don't have enough. We're not good enough. We're not good enough looking. We're not thin enough. We don't have enough money. Um, you know, we're not talented enough. We're not gifted enough. What it all kind of boils down to is um, we're not worthy enough to receive love. And so what that boils down to is we're not loved enough, right? And she makes the point in that book that, like, for a lot of us, maybe for all of us, we wake up in the morning and... Uh, before our feet even hit the ground, we have said to ourselves, we're not enough, not good enough, don't have enough. And so as our feet touch the ground, we start our day with the assumption that we have to go out and get for ourselves. For us to be good enough, for us to be thin enough, for us to have enough, to us to be successful enough, we have to go and set about our day fundamentally for ourselves. It's fundamentally self-centered. And the thing is, this is not like, unusual. This is how nature works, right? Um, your baby is the most self-centered person you've ever met, right? Because as soon as they have a need, what do they start doing? They just start crying until you meet their need, right? And this is the way babies work. And as we grow up, we become like older, and we realize that our mom and our dad are not going to fulfill those needs like that, and we have to go and seek them out on our own but it's still fundamentally self-centered. The difference is eventually someone is supposed to tell you that while your needs matter, you're not the only person in the world who exists. Other people have needs too. And you're supposed to learn that their needs actually have to be taken into account too. And so maybe my needs, what I want, isn't the most important thing in the world. But the problem is 
a lot of people don't really learn that. A lot of people never have that lesson. And this is the challenge of self-centeredness. It's just universal. I mean, we're born with it. And we need to be taught to think differently. We need to be taught to do differently because of this. Um, and this was something that existed in the Philippian culture, too. I mean, they were all about honor back then. You know, you didn't um, gain honor by being humble. You gained honor by drawing attention to yourself. They had to fight against that. This Philippian community, there were opponents. They needed to protect themselves. What Paul is saying is, don't do that. Don't be self-centered. Um, be other-centered. And the thing is, for us today, this is, a, this is a problem for us today, too. Just like the Philippians reflected their culture, I mean, we reflect our culture, too. Our culture is one of consumerism. If I want something, I'm going to go out and buy it. The question we ask ourselves is, does this meet my needs? The question we ask ourselves is, what do I get out of this? And if all of a sudden I don't like the thing anymore, I'm going to leave and go do something else, or I'm going to find it somewhere else. The way that this manifests itself in church culture is like, I don't like what the preacher has to say, so I'm going to go find a different message somewhere else. Or I don't like the music, the way that works, so I'm going to go do that and find that somewhere else. Or, you know, like, we don't offer the things that we want, so I'm going to go do that somewhere else. We can be susceptible to a very, very self-centered faith, which is ironic in the... Um, wake of the one who we follow, right? Where Paul is going with this is that we need to learn how to think differently, how to love differently, to relearn how to think and act and love from a place where we are not at the center. Because we know that self-centeredness just in any arena doesn't work, right? Like at your job, the person who's self-centered, that's the person no one wants to work with, you know? Like, no one's really happy when they succeed. They don't build team. He only cares about himself, his career, his accomplishments, his performance review. No one's really happy to work with that person. It, it doesn't work. You know, I don't know you and your marriage problems, but I bet self-centeredness is at the core of like 99.9999% of the problems that we face in marriage. Like, why are you impatient? Why are you mean with me? It's because you're not doing it the way I want, when I want, how I want, right? Um, why did you say that mean thing? Why did you, why didn't you hold that back? It's like, well, it kind of made me feel good to say that. I won the argument because of that. Self-centeredness, it's kind of at the core of our marital problems. And for the church, too. Self-centeredness in a body of people like us trying to work together, if we are self-centered, it will not work. Actually, it will work. It will work in the opposite direction of what God wants for us. Because when we act self-centered, whether it's in church or at work or at home or wherever it is, what happens is we necessarily devalue other people. Their needs, their opinions, their interests don't really matter that much. And when you're devalued like that, what you do is you're like, I have to fight for more value. And that causes them to be more self-centered. And so your self-centeredness turns into their self-centeredness. And so... Before you know it, you have a group of people running around who just, you know, are deluding themselves, thinking that they're the little kings and queens of the world. It just doesn't work. And the thing is, in relationship to God, when it comes to faith, what self-centeredness says to God is, I don't think you really have this. I don't really think that you've got this. 
I don't think that you have my best interests in mind. I don't think that you're um, powerful enough to take care of me. I don't actually think you care about me. And because of that, I have to take my interests into my own hands. I have to worry about myself because, God, you're not good enough at worrying about me. That's what self-centeredness looks like um, in relationship to God. I need something more God isn't or won't delivering, so I'll deliver it for myself. And that stands in stark contrast to faith. Because faith says, God, I trust you so much that even if I'm not getting what I want, I'm still going to entrust myself to you. I'm still um, confident in your love. I so believe that my ending is in your hands, that I can take myself out of the center. I don't need to be so concerned about myself because I believe that you've got this, that you've got me. And so I am free in that case to put the needs of others before me. The opposite of self-centeredness is faith. That's how much I trust you, God. I don't have to worry about myself. It's a radical dependence on God that really stands in such a stark contrast to the way our culture approaches life. It is like we need to be deprogrammed and then reprogrammed to think the right way. And that's really the antidote to uh, self-centeredness, to learn to take yourself out of the center and and to put something else there instead. And the thing that we should put there instead of ourselves is Jesus, which we quickly learn means putting others there. To become uh, non-self-centered means to become Christ-centered, which always means to become others-centered, to regard them as better, to look to their interests before our own. We need to learn how to think like this, how to act like this, how to live like this. And so just a few obvious steps that we can take. I mean, the first is the way we opened. You need to be able to and sometimes say, you're the problem here. You just need to. This is a tough step for a lot of people. For some people, they're so quick to blame themselves for all the problems in the world, but for some people, just unwilling to look in the mirror and say, yeah, I was wrong here. What you did person in the mirror, what you did needs to change, needs to be different next time. It's not going to work if I keep going on like this. It's hard to do that because it's easier to hope that everyone else around you will change, but you can't change their behavior. You can only change your own. What it takes in a word is humility. It takes the ability to look at yourself honestly and say, yeah, I'm not all I was cracked up to be there. I did make that mistake there. And uh, if you want to get humility, that's a different message for a different time. But the best thing I could say to you to get humility, and it's the most dangerous thing I could say to you, is to ask God to teach you humility. I don't know if you want to, though, because sometimes that's really painful. But that's how you're going to get humility. Ask God to humble you. Um, The second step we can take and we talked about this last week, it is just to simply believe in Jesus. It's to believe this. It's to actually believe that your life, whether, you, whether it goes good or bad, live or die, it's in God's hands, and he's absolutely trustworthy with it. Because when you actually believe that, you don't need to worry about yourself anymore. 
You don't need to worry about obtaining for yourself, proving yourself, protecting yourself, because God's got you. And if you're able to actually think like that and actually believe like that, then you are free. And this is the third thing, to unlearn that me-first thinking and learn others-first thinking. And the only way to actually, like, really learn that it, it's just to do it. It's just to put it into practice. And so my challenge for you this week is to just take concrete steps to become less me first and more others first. You know, and you could start that in your home today. Rather than going home and thinking, how can I have a good day today? Go home and think to yourself, how can I make my wife's day better today? And that's always a good idea. How can I make my husband's day better today, right? Um, or next time you're in that fight, you can say, you know what? I have the perfect insult. I have the way to win the argument, but I'm not going to say it because all that that benefits is me. It doesn't benefit them at all, and I'm not going to say it. Like, take that step today. For a lot of us who have kids, I mean, I have three boys, and they're, they're insane. Like, they're just overwhelming, right? Um, a lot of times when that happens, all oh, you're like, this is insanity, all I need is sanity. My kids are driving me nuts. All I need is sanity. And so what we do is we throw iPads at them. Not literally, but figuratively, we throw iPads at them, right? Or we send them out. We send them to the room. And like that takes care of what we need. But maybe as parents, we need to start thinking about what they need. Because what they need probably isn't an iPad or a timeout. Or I mean, maybe they do sometimes, right? Don't get me wrong. But like what they need maybe is our attention, right? What they need maybe is a little bit of affection from us. What they need maybe is a little bit of our love. But when as parents we just think self-centered, um, we are creating then self-centered kids also. In any arena of life, take a step this week to decide to hold your tongue, even if you're sitting on, you know, the perfect insult. Um, decide to listen and cultivate trust when it would be easier for you just to run right over them and get your way. Decide to allow yourself to be interrupted by someone else who needs your help. You know, put your schedule aside so that you could actually be there to help someone. Um, take a step this week to get low, to get on your hands and knees and serve someone, to humble yourself for their sake, not for your own. Another way of saying it is to learn to practice the kinds of things that Jesus did for us, like every day. Pick up any of the Gospels and read through, and you'll see, you know, he got down on his hands and his feet, and he washed the dirty hands of the people who followed him. He put his needs for rest aside in order to feed hungry people. He allowed himself to be interrupted from doing what he was doing by a woman who needed help. Jesus does this again and again. It's why Paul finishes this thought like this. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Learn to think like Jesus. Learn to have his outlook, his approach to life. Model your thoughts, your attitude, your disposition, your first reaction, your first thought in the morning, your first concern. Learn to model that after Jesus. That's how you ultimately learn to think and love differently. It's to think and learn, uh, think and love like the one who you follow, like Jesus. For those of you who were around the Christian world like 15, 20 years ago, you remember those like WWJD bracelets, right? Like we kind of laugh at them now and they're kind of like a little simplistic and maybe a little silly and sorry if I'm offending you if you have one on right now. Um, but it's kind of a compelling question. What would Jesus do 
here. It's, there's worse questions to ask in the world. I mean, if we need to know how to think and love differently, the way to train your mind to do that is to learn to ask that question. What would Jesus do here? If Jesus worked in my office, what would he, what would he do? If Jesus existed in my messed up family dynamic, what would he do? If Jesus were married to my wife, that's kind of a weird one. Right? <laughs> what would he do? What would Jesus' first reaction be here? How would Jesus approach this conflict? How would Jesus navigate this one? Whose interest would be first on Jesus' mind here? Part of what we need to learn uh, to think and love differently is that we need to know Jesus more. We need to know Jesus better. Um, to learn to think and love like him, you need to know him. And so next week, we want you to come back because that's what next week is about. Learning who our Lord is better. Um, look, look at yourself in the mirror sometimes and say, yeah, I'm the problem. Believe Jesus, that your life is in his hands, whether it goes your way or not. And then just take, take a concrete step this week to move away from self-centeredness and towards other-centeredness. Because getting rid of it in our lives, I mean, it really might be the key to unlocking your relationships that aren't working, to unlocking your faith that maybe seems stuck for some reason. And it is the only way forward that we have as a church. If we want to be serious about making an impact in Monmouth County for the gospel of Jesus, the good news that he lived, and he died, and he was raised for them. He was in charge of the world. This church isn't about us. It's about those people who aren't in it yet. We have to, each of us, need to learn to get rid of that self-centeredness and be other-centered. Which means to share God's love, God's good news with the world around. That's what we invite you into here uh, every Sunday. And so we invite you back next week to learn uh, about our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the way that you you do take care of us. And our lives are in your hands, whether, whether we feel it or not, whether it goes our way or not, whether we win or lose. Lord, we pray that you would bring encouragement from knowing you, from being in you. We pray that you would console us with your love where we need it. Lord, pour your spirit out upon us in this community here to know you, to share in your life, to receive you, to believe in you differently. Lord, for those of us who are in need of compassion, in need of sympathy, we pray that you would pour that out, Lord. God, give us the courage, give us the humility to look at ourselves in the mirror when we need to and say, yeah, you know what? You are the problem. Help us, help us to see it where we can't see it. Give us eyes to see um, the ways, the places, the attitudes, the actions that we have where we need to turn from and walk a different way. And Lord, help us come into our lives in a way that you're not right now. Come into our lives to, to be at our center. Drive us towards um, living for you, living for the sake of others. And for those of us um, who are tired from living so other-centered. We pray that you would give us rest, that you would give us um, refreshment, that you would give us energy. Lord, you are our master. You are our friend. You are our king. You are our savior. 
for everyone here um, who believes that, we pray that you would enter us now as we sing that. And to everyone here who doesn't believe that yet, Lord, that's what we pray for, that you would bring them to know you and, and follow you and call you master as we sing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.